Welcome to the Radical Truth Podcast. I am your host, Glenn Meldrum, and this podcast is brought to you by In His Presence Ministries. Visit us on the web at www.ihpministry.com. I covered the largest portion of Scripture in one lesson that I ever have done in this weekly podcast since I began it over 10 years ago. What we studied was a sermon Stephen preached before the Sanhedrin Council, which was a summary of the history of Israel that ended with his Holy Ghost fire preaching. The purpose in giving this overview of the nation's history was to expose the wickedness those religious leaders were practicing, which were very similar to what Israel gave over to in the past. Though their expression of idolatry may have been a little different, it all came from the same evil spirit that causes people to forsake the Lord and persecute His prophets. In Stephen's closing remarks, he laid out before the Sanhedrin the evil they had committed in crucifying Messiah, who was sent to save them from their sins. They didn't want to hear about their guilt before God because their idolatrous belief in the law of Moses, the temple, and the sacrificial system caused them to trust in their ritualistic religion and not in God. Stephen exposed their guilt and forced them to respond. Either they would repent of their sin and place their faith in Messiah, or rebel against Him, and sadly they chose the latter. In verse 54 we read the response these self-righteous men had towards Stephen's sermon. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Sounds like they were ready to start biting him like a bunch of rabid dogs, but to gnash their teeth is actually an expression of rage and hatred. It's a grit or clench your teeth in intense anger, and this demonstrates just how furious they were at Stephen's sermon. Matthew recorded in his gospel that Jesus used the word gnashing six times and Luke used it once. In every case, the gnashing of teeth was the response of wicked people's anger and hatred against God due to their eternal judgment that they received for the sin they practice. This reveals that God-hatred is integral to the life of every person that goes to hell. People don't go to hell just because they are willful sinners, but behind their love of sin is a hatred for God, and it's irrelevant if they are religious or not. The weeping and gnashing of teeth is a revelation of the true spiritual condition of the residents of hell, beginning with devils and then through every person. Jesus preached this truth so that people could repent of their sins and come to love the Savior. Heaven is full of people and good angels who are lovers of God, while hell is full of people and evil angels that are God-haters. In each case, people and angels get what they wanted, either a heaven filled with the wonder of God's presence or a hell with the total absence of His manifest presence. The residents of hell will never know the joy and wonder of God's manifest presence that brings with it all of His goodness, beauty, and love. The horror of hell that people and angels experience is of their own making. It's the just consequence of those who didn't want God in their life because they hated Him. When people don't want God in their life while on earth, they will get their heart's desire for all eternity, and this is judgment worse than anyone can fathom. The misery of such existence without the God we were created to love will be an agonizing torment that the Lord will have no need to actively punish the residents of hell. God's justice is perfect and infinite, for His knowledge has no end. He will always do what is right with each and every person when they stand before Him at their final judgment. The religious men in the account of Stephen had no intention of repenting because they didn't see themselves as sinners in need of repentance. Yet they were God-haters that were guilty of first killing the Savior and then Stephen. 
They refused to accept Jesus as their promised Messiah and justified their having him crucified because they viewed him as a blasphemer and false prophet. In their spiritual blindness and distorted way of thinking, they thought by ridding the nation of Jesus, they were sparing the nation from divine judgment. Yet it was their rejection of Messiah that brought judgment upon them. The King James Version rendered a portion of this verse as, They were cut to the heart. This makes it sound like those who heard Stephen preach were convicted of their sin, which must have been the case. But their reaction to the conviction was intense anger rather than godly sorrow. The Greek actually means that they were angry to the point of madness. And this is exactly what happens, as we will soon see in the following verses. The way this verse is worded gives the feel that these men were being driven by demonic forces, which I think is the case. Nobody who loves the true and living God will act as these men did. They didn't want to hear the truth that uncovered their wickedness and unmasked the fact that they were total hypocrites. Their response is to be expected from God-haters. They tried to silence a spirit's voice that spoke through the preacher. They rudely interrupted Stephen at the height of his message and then killed him. Then we read in verses 55 and 56, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We should live full of the Holy Spirit all the time so that we can quickly respond to the Spirit's leading and be instant in season and out of season. Being full of the Holy Spirit is to abide in that fullness, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an integral part of this. When we are thrust into a new situation or need, we can't put everything on hold while we get our spiritual life in order. We need to live ready to serve Jesus in whatever capacity he calls us to. Now, it was Stephen being full of the Holy Spirit that opened his eyes to see Jesus in the midst of the crisis that he was facing. This is actually a very powerful message here. If we are to overcome this world, our flesh life, and the spiritual forces of hell, then we must have our eyes fixed on Jesus. This way, we will be in right relationship with Jesus no matter what we face. If we don't live with our eyes fixed on Jesus, then when trials come our way, we may have a much harder time working through it all. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, which implies that he was in right fellowship with the Lord. It clearly implies that he had a vibrant life of prayer and strove to walk before the Lord in holiness and truth. A lot can be gleaned from the idea of being full of the Holy Spirit. and We learn from the life of Stephen that this was how he lived all the time, not just occasionally, and this is how we should live all the time. Because he had his eyes fixed on eternal things, he was in the right place at the right time in the right condition for him to have a heavenly vision where he saw the glory of God. Such visions come either to those who are in right fellowship with God or are given to those who aren't in right fellowship with Jesus so that they can get right with him. In this case, the vision was given for the benefit of those who heard Stephen preach and saw his face glow like that of an angel. Though at first it doesn't seem like any good came out of his death, but it's the exact opposite. The conversion of Saul is just one example of how God used this event for his glory. Another is how the church was forced to flee Jerusalem because of the persecution, and so the gospel spread in other areas of the nation. I imagine that this entire event haunted Saul. The words of Stephen's sermon and those he spoke before he died must have continued to pierce his heart and plague his conscience. 
There was something in the response of the Sanhedrin that must have been troubling to Paul as well. That Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God was a soul-shaking proof that they not only murdered an innocent man, but they had their Messiah crucified. And what Stephen said was true, that they were like their forefathers who persecuted and killed the prophets sent to them by God. Either they silenced the voice of Stephen or admit that what he preached was true and that they needed to repent of their crimes against God. The use of the title Son of Man is a revelation of Christ's divinity and his being the promised Messiah, and he often used this in reference to himself. This is the only time in the New Testament that the title Son of Man is used after his ascension into heaven. Jesus called himself the Son of Man before these very men at his sham trial. The high priest demanded that Jesus tell if he was the Messiah, and in Matthew chapter 26, verse 64, he boldly proclaimed, Yes, it is as you say, but I say to you all, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. This was the very statement that sent the high priest into a feeding frenzy, where he tore his clothes and proclaimed in Matthew chapter 26, verse 65, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. Jesus didn't commit blasphemy. He just told the absolute truth, because he is the absolute truth. He told the Sanhedrin that he would be seated at the right hand of the Father, which is a declaration of his equality with the Father. Now they were hearing the prophecy Jesus pronounced fulfilled through Stephen, who was speaking under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Why was Stephen being anointed to say that Jesus is the Son of Man? Because Jesus loved those self-righteous rulers and wanted them to repent and be saved before they died and went to hell. This is astounding. The Lord was giving his murderers another opportunity to get right with him. Jesus' equality with the Father is further revealed in that he was seated next to the Father's right hand. This also demonstrates that Jesus was pleasing to the Father in everything that he did and was doing. The Trinity is a mystery we will never understand or be able to fully explain, at least not in this life. This fact about the nature of God is soundly taught in Scripture, yet we need to understand this truth through the eyes of faith. The Lord gave us a tremendous amount of Scripture to base our faith upon. What Stephen saw and proclaimed was terrifying for those God-haters, because if it was true, then they had been fighting against God, which means that they were at war with Him. That Jesus was standing at the right hand of the Father speaks of His being ready to receive Stephen home, and this further exposes the guilt of these wicked men. This proves that Stephen was pleasing to Jesus, and that his murderers were killing another one of God's messengers. What Stephen saw, he proclaimed to the council, but this would only incur their wrath rather than their understanding. In verses 57 and 58, we see the council's response to a man who was full of the Holy Spirit. At this they covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses lay their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. These two verses show us what can happen to those who are full of the Holy Spirit. Everyone who loves the Holy Spirit will respond to the Spirit's moving in a positive way, while those who don't love the Holy Spirit will reject the move of the Spirit. Those who are God-haters can even respond with murder in their hearts and possibly in their actions, as in the account we are studying right now. 
There are times when those who love God reject the move of the Spirit because they are either ignorant of His ways or have the doctrinal baggage that keeps them from receiving the work of the Holy Spirit. Many people that profess to love Jesus have fought against the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. If you read the autobiography of Charles Finney or a good biography on him, you will see how the Holy Spirit was being poured out in marvelous ways with vast numbers of people being saved from all walks of life. At the same time, the greatest opponents to the revival were religious people, and at times it was pastors and preachers at the forefront of the attack. The Lord takes seriously any tax against the Holy Spirit, and the consequences can be serious. A couple of ministers that fought against Finney died in the midst of their attacks against him, similar with the account of Ananias and Sapphira. Other ministers saw a serious decline in their ministry after attacking the great revivalists. The Holy Spirit was grieved by their acts. The judgment had already begun to fall upon the Sanhedrin, and we see this with the hardening of their hearts against the Holy Spirit. Those who harden themselves against the Spirit are searing their conscience and grieving the Spirit of God. This is an extremely dangerous thing to do. Paul addressed this issue in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 8-11, through 11, warning, Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion, during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, and for forty years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation and said, Their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, They shall never enter my rest. The Apostle to the Gentiles was writing to Jewish believers, reminding them of the terrible rebellion of ancient Israel and the consequences that came upon them. It's obvious from verse 12 that he was writing to believers, stating, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. The Israelites saw God's miracles for 40 years, yet they still refused to trust him. We must guard our hearts so that unbelief doesn't corrupt our heart and move us away from God's favor into his disfavor and wrath. The persecutors of Stephen covered their ears so they couldn't hear what the man of God said, and this is a picture of what people do when they reject the ministry of the Holy Spirit. A demon-inspired rage was upon these religious leaders, and all they wanted to do was to silence the preacher's voice that brought such overwhelming conviction of sin. Covering their ears wasn't enough to silence the voice of God speaking through Stephen. So they yelled at the top of their voices and then rushed at him. This is hell unifying those whose spiritual father is Satan to silence God's voice to keep people from salvation. In their rage, they dragged Stephen out of Jerusalem and began to stone him. The King James Version states that they cast him out of the city. The idea of casting him out or dragging him out both present the same idea of the brutal rage that was behind their actions. What utter hypocrisy. They obeyed the Mosaic law by stoning Stephen outside of the city, but they thoroughly rejected the law by bringing false witnesses against Stephen and for murdering an innocent man. The Mosaic law required people to be stoned to death who were seducing the Jews to worship false gods, and this was found in Deuteronomy chapter 13. They didn't bring any formal charges against Stephen because they didn't have any, nor did the Sanhedrin give a final judgment since they hadn't convicted him of any crime. This was mob rule that was defying the law of Moses and Roman law. 
As they were dragging Stephen out of the city, they were probably physically abusing him, so that by the time they reached the place where they would stone him to death, he was probably already a bloody mess. According to Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 7, the witnesses were to be the first to cast the stones at a guilty person. Why was this? It was to express that their testimony was true. This way, those who helped stone a person to death wasn't guilty before God if the witness lied and the person was actually innocent. Stephen was innocent of blaspheming the Lord or speaking against Moses or the Word of God. Dr. Luke added a very important note to this verse by stating that Saul, whom we know by his Greek name as Paul, was giving authority or sanction to the murder of Stephen. The people stoning Stephen was a mixture of members of the council, the witnesses, and any others that joined in the procession of dragging the preacher out of the city to stone him. Since the mob came from the chambers of the Sanhedrin and Saul was sanctioning the murder of Stephen, we know that Paul was on intimate terms with the council. This is why some commentators have made the claim that Paul may have been a member of the Sanhedrin council, who would have then been appointed to that prestigious position after the murder of Messiah. At the very least, he was on intimate terms with some of the members of the council. Stephen's final response is seen in verses 59 and 60. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's reaction to the crazed hate of the religious elite is beautiful and Christ-like, and it happened while he was being murdered through the slow, painful execution of people throwing stones at him. These weren't little pebbles, but stones large enough to do serious physical damage, and when the damage was severe enough, then the person finally died. It appears from these two verses that at first Stephen was standing before his persecutors and then finally fell on his knees. I'm not sure if his death was caused by the harm inflicted on him by his persecutors or whether the Lord took him home before the deed was finally done. Either way, Stephen died as the church's first martyr and was received by Jesus with open arms. Dr. Luke used the idea that Stephen fell asleep, but this is a simple, kind way of saying that after death, he would awake in the heavenly realm. This idea about falling asleep has nothing to do with the false doctrine called soul sleep, where it's claimed that after death the righteous go to an in-between existence where they are waiting for their final resurrection. They claim that the dead are in this soul sleep until the Lord awakens them at the end of all things where they will face their final judgment. There's enough in Scripture that teaches against this doctrinal error, like what Paul taught that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and we find this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. Paul also taught in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How can death be gain if we aren't with the Lord immediately after death, but in some kind of spiritual suspended animation? Then Paul wrote in verse 23, I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Our bodies are temporal. They will return to the dust from which they came. But our soul is eternal and will live in either heaven or hell depending on what people do with Jesus. It's far better to be with Jesus forever than to live as long as we can on this planet. The difference between Stephen and the religious rulers is strong and startling. Stephen was filled with love, compassion, and even forgiveness, while the religious Jews were filled with hate and a desire to hurt anyone that disagreed with them. 
Stephen was demonstrating God's love, while his persecutors were representative of Satan and filled with hate. This godly man didn't seek retribution for the evil the religious Jews were inflicting on him, but instead asked for God to forgive them. In contrast, the members of the Sanhedrin wanted to destroy a man who was full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen lived a life that was pleasing to God, while the religious elite were his enemies. Now let's look at the two statements Stephen made at the time when he was passing from this world into eternal life to be with Jesus forever. The first is a declaration or plea, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And the second is a prayer of intercession, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. The Gospels record seven sayings that Jesus spoke while he hung on the cross, and Stephen quotes the first and the last only in reverse order. Christ's seven sayings can be divided into three categories. The first take place before the darkness that fell upon the land, and they are, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Today you will be with me in paradise. And, woman, here is your son, here is your mother. There is only one in the second category that happened during the darkness, and it's, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The final three happen after the darkness. I am thirsty, it is finished, and, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Like I said a moment ago, Stephen was speaking under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and at that same time, what he was saying came out of a heart that was pure before God. So the first saying Stephen spoke is similar to the last one Jesus spoke, and in both cases they were yielding their spirit to the Father. Stephen knew he was going to die, yet in the face of such vicious hate, he was in perfect peace through divine grace. Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit right after he had said, it is finished. Jesus finished the work the Father sent the eternal Son to accomplish. Stephen was finishing up his work as a faithful disciple of Jesus, but he had one thing to do before he died. The last thing Stephen said was, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Even as Stephen was getting ready to leave this wicked world, he had to leave with a pure heart by forgiving his enemies. Though the religious elite were killing Stephen stone by stone, he was dying victorious as a conqueror through divine grace. Those hate-filled murders didn't win. Stephen did. His prayer wasn't in vain because Saul was there, and he saw and heard everything that went on with Stephen's sham trial and murder. We see this in the next verse that begins chapter 8 of the book of Acts. Verse 1 reads, and Saul was there, giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. A severing was finally taking place between the Jewish and Christian faiths that was bound to happen. The apostles and disciples wouldn't be able to preach again in the temple courts, since they had become marked men by the Sanhedrin and religious elite. Saul not only approved of Stephen's murder, but from that event, a great persecution broke out against the church that was possibly led by Saul. It was like ravenous lions that after eating human flesh and blood, refused to eat anything else. The feeding frenzy was on the religious Jews, and they wanted to eradicate the newfound faith from Jerusalem. This caused many of the saints to flee to safer places in Judea and Samaria. It doesn't seem like they were seeking to save their lives from suffering and persecution, they were actually striving to obey the Lord's command that when persecuted in one city, then flee to another. When people refused to listen to the gospel, 
then the disciples must look for fertile places to plant the good seed of the gospel in. Saul and his fellow persecutors thought they were doing God's work by persecuting Christ's followers, and they became zealous to advance this work. If the religious elite were successful at cleansing Jerusalem of Christians, then they would have begun to pursue the followers of Jesus in the rest of the country. The Sanhedrin, along with the religious Jews, rejected the fact of Christ's resurrection, for it proved our Lord's innocence and their enormous guilt in having Him crucified. As the saints boldly preached on the resurrection, the persecution against them grew more severe. We aren't told what happened to those disciples who faced the demon-inspired hatred working through those religious hypocrites. But knowing the cruel and wicked nature of mankind, it doesn't take much imagination to conclude it was serious. During this time, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, probably thinking that it was the most central place to oversee the infant church. In verse 2, we are told that godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Stephen was deeply loved because of the man of God he had become. We aren't told if he had a wife and children, but there's certainly a very good possibility since that was expected of young men at that time and in that culture. Marriages were most often arranged by the parents. If he was married, then the mourning for him was all the more deeper. It states that godly men buried Stephen, not his family. This is odd since the burial would have normally been done by the family and within a very short period of time. For the family to not be mentioned as the ones who buried Stephen implies that they had either disowned him for his faith or being protected from any repercussions that might have fallen upon them because of his death. Verse 3 gives us a good reason why the family may not have sought to bury Stephen's body. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Since Saul's ambition was to destroy the church, he was doing everything in his power to do so. Understanding the nature of people, it's easy to surmise that there were spies and informants who would turn over Christians for a fee. Jerusalem had become a very dangerous place for the disciples. The religious Jews dragged off men and women and put them in prison for believing that Jesus was the promised Messiah. The Sanhedrin had come to fear the disciples. They viewed them as detrimental to society and the well-being of the nation. In those days and in that culture, they didn't have to procure a search warrant before they knocked down the doors of people's homes. They didn't have to have criminal charges to incarcerate them for extended periods of time. The imprisoned didn't have any advocates in high places or any right to defend themselves. Their persecutors could incarcerate them until they felt ready to release them or they died in prison from the terrible conditions. What those religious hypocrites hoped to accomplish backfired on them, and we see this in verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The gospel needed to spread beyond the walls of Jerusalem, and the Lord used this persecution to force the disciples to go beyond their comfortable borders. That the saints were obeying Jesus' command to flee to other cities when they were being persecuted is evident from this verse. They weren't being cowards, but obedient disciples, and their love of Christ is seen in how they preached the word of God wherever they went. This concludes our study of Stephen, who is one of the first seven deacons of the church. Now we will begin looking at another one of those deacons who is full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. The rest of this chapter is about Philip and how the Lord used another disciple who wasn't an apostle to perform signs and wonders. 
We even get to see how revival is working through him, which revival is an awesome miracle of God. The account begins with verse 5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. Philip went to Samaria because of the persecution that broke out in Jerusalem that began with Stephen's martyrdom. He went to Samaria because the religious Jews had no authority over the Samaritans, because there was a great animosity between them and the Jews. The Samaritans were partial descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, being mixed with other nations. They rejected the entire Old Testament except for the first five books of Moses, and they rejected the temple worship in Jerusalem. Christians were safe in Samaria, and through Philip a great revival broke out at the same time a great persecution broke out in Jerusalem. Isn't that an interesting idea? Lord, send us revival. Thank you for listening to The Radical Truth with your host, Glenn Meldrum. We at In His Presence Ministries pray that this weekly podcast will be a blessing to you. Please tell others about it and subscribe yourself to this free podcast. Don't forget to visit our website at www.ihpministry.com. See you again next time, and may God richly bless you as you seek Him in spirit and in truth. Thirst no more, so come wash in the river, come drink your fill, let healing walk.